0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3. Thus far through the Gospel of Mark, our focus has been on uh, the identity and authority of Jesus. That's what's been repeated over and over again. I hope that's getting ingrained in our hearts and in our minds. And that transitions us really to another question. So what are we going to do about it? What do you believe about Jesus when you hear these things about Him? I'm going to approach this passage um, in a way that I'm not original to doing it this way. As I studied, I realized I'm not the first one to think of the passage in this light. But many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and how he wrote about how when you read the Gospels, you can't just conclude Jesus was a nice man or a a powerful teacher alone. The world would like to kind of put him into that kind of a category. But C.S. Lewis said, if you read the Gospels, you're, you're... you're forced into drawing one, one of three conclusions. That Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And perhaps you got it out of this passage because this is where it, we see these three responses to Jesus in our text this morning. The things that Jesus says about himself are so bold and extraordinary, it forces us to draw these conclusions. We we can't make a middle ground here. Jesus is either a liar, he's, he's deceiving people, he's intentionally leading people to believe that he is the Lord God when in fact he is merely a lying agent of Satan. That'd be one option. Or by the things he says, you'd say, Well, maybe he's not a liar, maybe he's just crazy. Maybe he has no idea who he actually is. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's insane. He thinks he's the son of God. He thinks he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He thinks he can forgive people's sins. And if he's crazy, we should put him away. Or the third option, he is the Lord. He is in fact who he says that he is, that he is the son of God who has authority to speak and act as God. And if that's the case that he should be believed and he should be followed. So I'm going to read our text this morning, and uh, starting in verse 7 of chapter 3. And as we read, I want you to listen for these responses in the text, because they're all there. Starting in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Eudemia, and from beyond the jordan and from around tyre and sidon when the great crowd heard all that was uh, that he was doing they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd lest they would crush him for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him and whenever he, the unclean spirits saw him they fell down before him and cried out you are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on, a, on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, and the brother of James, whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home And the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who who, uh, sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So let's look at the three responses that we have to Jesus in this text. The first group saw Jesus as a liar. The first group saw Jesus as a liar. Now this, of course, starts in verse 22. These are the scribes. These are the Jewish leaders coming down from Jerusalem. We know from chapter 3, verse 6, that the scribes and the Herodians had already gotten together to decide how are they going to destroy Jesus. They heard what he said, They concluded he's a danger and a blasphemer, and he needs to die. And then we have in verse 22, what were they thinking? What was going on inside of their heads? Well, they had concluded that he is possessed by a Beelzebul, which is just another name for Satan. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. They start saying among themselves that Jesus is a demonic teacher Blaspheming God. He claims to lead people to God, but he's actually leading people astray and towards destruction. Because they watched him. They had been closely watching along the way. They were there in the synagogues. They were watching him do the healings. They were hearing him say, making himself out to be Lord. To them, they're saying, he's getting people to believe that he can forgive their sins. He's leading people to believe that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, that he's the bridegroom, that he has the right to arrive on the scene and then start to declare things that are new. That the things he says aren't going to fit into their old ways, their old traditions. Their conclusion is that he is a blasphemer, intentionally leading people astray. He is not a fool. He's not a great teacher. He's a threat, and he's a liar. Now that's what they're talking about amongst themselves but they have a they have a problem. In fact they have a major problem with this. He does miracles to back it up. The lame are walking. The lepers are cleansed. The sick are made well, the demons are being cast out, and the facts are indisputable. They have seen it with their own eyes. The word is getting out, the testimonies are everywhere. It's hard to say he's a liar, but then have him do all these miracles. He can't just be crazy either. I'm sorry. He can't just be a uh, 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 crazy because he can't uh, he can't have that supernatural power if that is the case, and he can't be Lord. He can't be the Lord because the implications are too great for them. They're unwilling to believe that he is Lord. For if he is Lord, then that means everything about their life is going to have to change. That he is going to be, he's going to undo everything that they've been building up in their religious system. He's out here to undo that. He's going to be undoing them, who they, how they see themselves. And they refuse that conclusion. They refuse to accept the fact that he is Lord, because that would turn their world upside down. It would, they refuse to accept the way that he is presenting the Messiah. All right? they, they have this image of who the Messiah is, and Jesus is not that. And they're like, I'm not going to take that kind of Messiah. You know, that's the case for many people. There are a lot of people in our world who don't believe Jesus is Lord because they don't want to believe it. And they don't want to believe it because the implications are too great. Everything in their life would have to change, they may have to turn their back on the, the religion of their family. And that's too much to bear for them. They have to change the direction of their life. Things in their marriage will have to change. I think we underestimate how many people don't want Jesus to be Lord. And they'd rather call him a liar and face the implication, rather than face the implications that he is in fact Lord. So what are they going to do? What's their strategy? Well, verse 22 Gives it to us. They were saying among themselves that he is not from God. He's from Satan. They determined that he is a demonically empowered man deceiving people as an agent of Satan himself. It's it's even uncomfortable just to say that out loud. But that was what they were scheming. That's what they were talking about amongst themselves. And to this, Jesus responds... He gets word of the chatter. He knows of what they're saying. He knows how they're thinking, how they're reasoning. And he gives them a truth. And he gives them a warning. in 23. And he calls them to him and said to them in parables. So first, the truth he gives them. This parable. If a, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. He says, it makes no sense to say that Satan is casting out Satan. How can Satan cast out Satan, Jesus asks. Even Satan would not work to destroy himself. He has a kingdom that he is trying to build, and it doesn't make any sense to conclude that he is actively working to destroy himself by casting out his own agents and destroying his own power. He says, listen, scribes, Satan is not destroying Satan. I am. I'm the one who's literally freeing people's bodies and souls from demonic power. I'm the one, in verse 27, who's binding the strong man who is Satan. I'm not working for Satan. I'm conquering him. And then Jesus gives this warning. He gives a warning to the disciples. He knows how they're thinking, or the, the, the scribes. He knows how they're thinking. He goes, I want, I want you to listen up to me, he says. I'm going to say something very strong. I'm giving you a warning for anyone who would dare go down your path, who would dare make the claims that you are making, scribes. The most egregious thing, he says, you could say about me Would be to say that I am not working by the power of the Holy Spirit, but instead to claim that I am working by the power of Satan. That I am here to lie and deceive mankind by by Satan's strength. He says in verse twenty eight, "All sins will be forgiven the children of men." But Jesus says, "If you're going to know me, if you're going to experience me and the power that I possess." And the authority that I have, and then call me an agent of Satan, then you are hopelessly lost in your sin, and that sin never has forgiveness. I'll read it again. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, but whoever blasphemes, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. You know what, that's a difficult passage. Clearly, in the context, it seems to be describing the sin the Pharisees are engaged in here. Let me say a few things. Notice that the sin that is the worst of all sins is a religious sin. It doesn't say adultery, it doesn't say lying. It doesn't say greed. It's a sin of religious people. It's a rejection of the person of Jesus as the Son of God working by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the implications are clear in what Jesus is saying to these men. There is more hope for the worldly tax collector than the self righteous rabbis from Jerusalem. And it's a shocking thing that he says to him, it's a scary thing that he says to him. We see a similar thing stated in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. It says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then to have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. To turn from Christ after having heard the truth, having experienced the goodness of God, having tasted the work of the Holy Spirit, and then to declare it all a deception from the devil... Jesus says this is the most dangerous of all spiritual conditions. To be in that place is to face an eternity without forgiveness. To think that way, to believe that, crushes a soul for eternity. They had, they had seen it all. They had been right there. They were witnesses of Jesus himself. They had seen him preach and teach and heal and save. And say, you know what, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit, that's the work of Satan. That is the most dangerous place a human soul could ever be in. And it raises the question, is it possible to harden your heart beyond repair? You know, it makes us uncomfortable perhaps even to ask that question because we know of the power of God's grace to save anyone, right? The power of God's grace can save anyone, and it's true. Even Paul, the persecutor of the church, could be saved. But at the same time, I don't want to dull the sharp edges of this verse. I don't want to soften it so the blow isn't as hard. Sometimes Jesus' words are uncomfortable, and that is by design. Jesus is intending the scribes to be uncomfortable. You see it? He wants them to be uncomfortable. He wants them to be nervous. That was his whole point. We should read that. Say, I'd I'd never want to be that one. I don't want to ever be the one who would, would encounter the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ and then call Jesus a liar and an agent of Satan. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Psalm 2, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Lest... I'm sorry, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. It is a dangerous thing to hear the voice of God being proclaimed and taught and to hear who he is and to taste of what it's like to be around where the Holy Spirit is working. To experience it firsthand and then to harden your hearts and walk away. Those warnings are real. The word is sharp at that point and it stings. And that's the point. Should heaven and hell weigh in the balance? Group number two, group number two, Jesus is a lunatic. This is verses 20 and 21. So by this time in Jesus' ministry, the crowds are now really kind of out of control. Or he's, and if you remember, he was, when, he, when he taught, he was being pushed to be actually preached from a boat because there was no more room on the shore because everybody wanted to touch Jesus. He's a celebrity who has the authority to teach and the power to heal and deliver. Now, at this point, you remember, Jesus is really an itinerant preacher. He is going from town to town in the region of Galilee. He's away from his family. He's he's away from Nazareth, those he had grown up with. And they start talking amongst each other back in Nazareth, and, and they're saying things. Are you hearing what Jesus is doing? Like, do you hear what's going on with Jesus? And the stories keep getting more unbelievable, And people are walking away from their livelihoods and following him. Like, they start saying, do you hear, like, who his followers are? Like, it's groups of sinners. But most relevantly, I think, to this passage, they might be saying, okay, this is getting really serious now. The leaders from Jerusalem are coming, and they want to kill him. Jesus becomes a target. And they start to maybe wonder, well, how is this going to affect us? At first we were like kind of proud of him. like he was doing a good thing. This is great. People are repenting of their sins, but now. but now look what, now they want to kill him. At least some people do. Does this put us in danger? Now, of course, his family knew he was different. I mean, those who grew up around Jesus knew he wasn't like every other child. He was a sinless man. But when they hear all that's going on in verse 21, it actually says that they get together and they say, Jesus is out of his mind. He's crazy. He's a lunatic. And it appears if you look down in verse 30. Um, 31 and 32, that when they finally arrive there to, to, to see Jesus, Mary herself is among those who are questioning Jesus' sanity. She's among those who are trying to show up to get Jesus. Even though she knows, because she was told by God, an angel, who he is, she's confused by, and even on this point wrong about Jesus. Perhaps out of a desire to protect him, or maybe she was getting embarrassed or ashamed of how things were going. But one thing is certain: she wanted to get him off the road, along with the others. And so it says in verse one that they twenty-one. I'm sorry, that they went out to seize him. This is is the kind of a word we'd say. They went out to arrest him. They wanted to take him. This was not an invitation. Hey, Jesus, why don't you consider coming home? This was an intervention, you know? When somebody has a problem, maybe someone is addicted to drugs and the family gets around, the closest friends get around, they say, we're going to invite them over. We're going to get them in the room. We're going to lock the doors and have an intervention. We're going to speak the truth to you. We're going to kind of Uh, try to knock some sense into you and we're going to take you home we're going to deliver you from this we're going to intervene and seize you that's what they're trying to do here I always want to remind us and I do it often like don't be hard on these people we know the story they did not know the whole story they're trying to figure out with their own eyes what is going on here And if someone were doing these things, some of us in this room would be saying, maybe he's just crazy. I I don't know what to make of it. But now I know they want to kill him. So this is getting out of hand. Let's take him home. He's not thinking straight. An application point for us on this. Um, If you stick too close to Jesus the world is going to call you what they call him. If you decide, I'm going to walk faithfully with the Lord, I'm going to try to, I want to know Jesus and I want to walk with him. I want to do what he asks. I want to love him the way that he calls me to love him. If you start to actually live that way, people are going to say things like, you know what? Sarah's gotten a little crazy. I mean, Jesus is great and everything, but this is getting a little out of hand. If you stick close to Jesus, you too will be labeled as a radical who is taking things too far. Remember the words from John 15. These are Jesus' words. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you bear Jesus' name up front and center in your life, work or your family gatherings or with the guys at school then you're going to bear the scorn and the mockery and the hatred and even the destruction that Jesus bore we have to come to terms with how bearing the name of Christ is going to destroy our worldly reputation to actually live out what Jesus commands of us and to walk in his ways is not going to build the world's view of you. It's not going to build your resume. It's not going to be a, a positive mark from your friends, from the family. Bearing the name of Jesus is a call to also bear the shame that Jesus bore. In Hebrews thirteen thirteen says this, therefore, let us go to him, go to Jesus, let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus was, was crucified outside the city and he bore the reproach. He bore the shame. He bore the scorn. He bore the mocking. There's a crazy man up there. Or in some cases, there's a liar up there. He was called all of those names wrongly. And then Hebrews says, now you go out there with him. You go out where he was. And you bore the reproach. You bear the shame. And nobody in this room wants to go out there and do that. Because it's hard. It ruins our reputation. It kind of puts a hamper on our plans for life. So what are we supposed to do? How, how are we supposed to think? When someone says, you know, you're, you're just kind of crazy. You're just kind of crazy. Why don't you just go home? Or maybe even harder, your kids come to you and say, mom, you're crazy. Why don't you stop? Hebrews 13, 14 says, for we have no less." La- for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come so what do you say in that moment you say this this is not my home i'm not building my life to have a good time right now in this place i'm actually living for a city that is to come so i'm going to endure the shame I'm going to endure the mocking. I'm going to endure the lower grade. And I'm not living for people to tell me that they think I'm nice and respectable. I'm going to live so that I can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So the first group considered Jesus a dangerous liar and a servant of Satan. The second group considered him out of his mind. And now we'll look at the third group those who considered him Lord, Jesus is Lord. So they don't think he's crazy, and they don't think he's an agent of the devil. They are, in fact, willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Now, I realize in saying that, they did not understand the full implications of what that meant in the moment, but they are willing to follow Jesus when he calls. They think that he is to be trusted and should be followed, and one who speaks from God. So I'll call this the the, uh, Jesus is, is Lord group. And we see it, number one, in the crowds, the crowds, verses 7 through 8. Um, sorry, 7 through 10. All right, the crowds are massive at this point. They're coming from um, Jerusalem. They're coming from the south of Israel. They're coming from uh, east of the Jordan River. They're coming from Sire and Tidon, which is actually a Gentile region. They're all coming to see Jesus, and they're overwhelming him in chapter 3, verse 10. This says they were cru- that he was being crushed by them, falling upon him in, in an effort to touch him. You, just, you get the, the sense of the desperation of these people. I think of the, the men who pulled open the roof in the last chapter, trying to get to Jesus, knowing how, what a disruption and what a, how visible their, their uh, desperation was. Probably most in this room have never experienced or even seen with our eyes apart from pictures those images where we see people going through a famine and in the, in a, in a pickup truck comes into town and they're, you know, they're, they're throwing out bags of rice or they're throwing out grain. People are scooping up buckets of grain just trying to get something to bring home because they're that desperate. And some of us would never, the thought of doing that, we've never been that desperate before. Right now, we would feel like a little bit embarrassed to look that uncivilized to be picking up grain off the ground, trying to get some food to eat. These people are pressing in on Jesus because they need to touch him, and they don't care who sees it. People are saying, you know, I traveled four weeks to get here, how far did you travel? We got to get to Jesus. And, and a word to some of you, most in this room probably today do not feel desperate. And I don't mean that in a bad way, you just, you just things are going okay, like life is in order right now, you, you're not in some difficult decision making a moment of life, and you're not desperate. But do you know what, there could be some of you in this room who actually are desperate. Like honestly, you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Life actually is really hard right now. And I'm feeling pretty desperate. And I want to encourage you to rejoice in that moment. Because that may be the very thing that God is using you in your life right now to get you to hold on to Him. To say, I've got to touch Jesus, I want to I press in on Him. How can I get closer? I'm desperate. Never be ashamed to be desperate for Jesus. Hosea says, "Prophet Hosea." So let us, so let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Don't ever be ashamed to press on to know the Lord. The second group who recognizes that Jesus is Lord Is the demons. This is a very brief point, but the demons also recognize it in verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 11. When Jesus went around, they cried out, You are the Son of God. The demons knew that he was not a lunatic, and they knew he wasn't a liar. The spiritual world knew that Jesus, and knows that Jesus is Lord. The next group are the disciples. Mark records the 12 men who now follow Jesus, and Known as apostles, as Jesus calls them. These men have left their families, their careers, to go where Jesus goes and stay where Jesus stays. The reason is that they believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And God names them apostles or messengers. There's ones who who are commissioned to take the message of Jesus. And they're being called into training And they're being called into training to live and to die for the sake of Jesus, their Lord. Jesus knows that's what he's training them for. He says, I want you to come be with me. And when he does that, I want you to know he knows they're going to die for it. We could learn a lesson on this sometimes when we talk to people about what what it is to be a Christian. Sometimes we want to lighten it just so maybe it might be more attractive. When we're calling someone to Christ and we're sharing the gospel with someone, I want you to know that the cost may be high. Not everyone's going to die for him, but the cost is high. Jesus says, I want you to come follow me. He knows what this is going to take them. And how are they going to learn to follow him? They're going to be with him in verse 14. Do you see that? He calls them that they might be with him. Jesus' method for training his disciples is to be with them. If we want to know how to be ready to live and die for Jesus as our Lord, then we must respond to the call to be with Jesus. Knowing about Jesus is not enough to sustain us. You must know him. You must experience what it is to be with him, to walk by faith and not by sight. Walking by faith is an experience of life. I need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. I need to know his forgiveness. I need to experience the patience of God and his love I need to know the mighty power of his conviction of sin and then also know what it is to have rejoicing in the forgiveness that he gives. Paul says, I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He knew Jesus. He walked with him. He knew what what it was to rejoice and worship Jesus. Jesus. And they were going to be with him that they might know him. And then from this place of knowing him, he sends them out to preach and to cast uh, cast out demons in his name. As their Lord, he commissions them with this message and the power to spread it. His true and living discipleship is built on the lordship of Jesus as the master and and the submission to his mission. And don't ever forget verse 19, whenever it lists the disciples, it puts Judas in there and it it says that he is the one who betrayed him. To walk among the chosen of God does not make you one. Because one day Jesus would betray, I'm sorry, Judas would betray Jesus. He he would reject Jesus' identity. He would reject Jesus' authority. And he would join in with the Pharisees who crucified the Lord of glory. The call to lordship is the call of every disciple of Jesus. The last group here, the true family of Jesus. Mark ends this section with a clarifying statement from Jesus about who Jesus' true family is. So his his family's knocking at the door, Mary's there, brothers are there trying to get to Jesus. Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters? And then he says in verse 34, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' biological family and childhood companions thought that he was crazy, and they were there to seize him. And in that moment, Jesus says, It is those who do the will of God who are my family. Now, Jesus' ministry up to this whole to this point has been that he is preaching the will of God with authority. And there was no doubt that people in people's minds that Jesus was getting and calling people to follow him. Follow me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who forgives sins. It is the will of God, Jesus was preaching, that you follow me. It is the will of God that you repent and believe the gospel. It is the will of God that you be my disciple. Calling people to do obedience, to obey God was calling them to follow him. That he is their savior. That he brings the new wine of the new covenant. That he is Lord And to follow him is in fact doing the will of God. In that room that day, he's saying, The ones who are my family are the ones who do the will of God. And the ones who do the will of God are the ones who follow me. That has been his message for these first three chapters of Mark. And all who follow him are his true family. If you come to Jesus as your Lord, That I want you to know that he welcomes you as family. If you recognize that I need, that Jesus is my God, that he is my Savior, that he is the one I, I will follow in my life, he is my master. When you come to him like that, in fear and trembling, I want you to know that he welcomes you to the table and says, you're my brother, you're my sister. You're my family. You can sit down at my dinner table with me. See, we're not just a church family. We are truly Christ's family. And we are the family of Christ before we are anybody else. Before I'm a steward, I belong to Christ's family before you're a mason or a Kaufman, whoever it may be, like your identity is first found in Christ. That is who Rob is. And that is who you are if you know Christ today. That to him, you are a brother. To him, you are a sister. Our flesh and blood may fail us, abandon us, call us crazy, write us off, persecute us, or forsake us. But Jesus is no such Lord. He does no such thing. He is a good Lord and a faithful Savior. We're about to partake of communion together, and we talk about uh, this is for those who have a personal relationship with Jesus, and it's good that we say that. This text drives us to say that, in fact. This is for those who are part of the family of Jesus. This is a family meal this is the time we recognize, this is the time that I can remember that Jesus, my older brother, died for me. That he, I deserve to die, and he died in my place. This is for those who have done the will and repented and believed the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to make known to us. He died that we might have life, and he is no liar and he is no lunatic. He is and will ever be Lord. So the question is, do you believe that today? His death was not the death of a holy prophet or a radical teacher. He was the Lord who gave himself up for us. And in the celebration, we are being called to unite. It reminds us that we are united to him and we're united united to each other because of what he's done. And it shouldn't be, well, put it this way, if your brother died, you wouldn't take it very lightly. And if you don't know Jesus today, this isn't for you. It could be. It could be if you're willing to say Jesus is actually Lord, that he's the Lord who died for my sin, that he's the Lord who welcomes me his table in this we remember his sacrifice his resurrection that we might have eternal life so everyone in this room should be bowing now in repentance and rejoicing if you know him if you know him you you rejoice in the fact that your sin truly is forgiven but you also repent and say Lord if there is any way that I am not walking with you today Turn my heart around. Turn it around. Stop letting me get away with sin in my life. Change me. If you don't want to pray that, then you shouldn't come. If you don't want Jesus to change you, if you want to just stay where you're at, then you should stay where you're at. But if you do, he loves to change his children. He doesn't ask you to be perfect. but He does ask you to come to him and to trust Him, and to believe Him, that what He offers is good, so may we take this with thanksgiving. So I'm going to pray, then the music will start, and you can come forward, take the elements back to your seat, and we'll partake together. Lord God, we are grateful that you sent your Son to be our Lord and our Master, our Savior and our friend, and our brother. Help us to be faithful disciples. Help us to partake in this moment with with seriousness and thankfulness. Because you are good. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.